So let's say you're out to coffee with a, an old Christian friend. You haven't seen him in a while. And he shares with you, and he's excited about this, that he's seeing a girl. And he's going to propose to her. Now, uh, you know this brother. He is, he's a believer. Come to find out, his soon-to-be fiancé is not. And so, as a friend, as a brother in Christ, or a sister in Christ, you say, from the Bible, you show him that his relationship with this lady is in fact, sinful. It's, it's something that he's been commanded not to pursue, and so you exhort him to call it off. So what are you going to be called, almost certainly? You'd be called a Pharisee. Or let's say you're on the socials online. That's social media. I just learned that like yesterday. Um, and you respond to a post if, in favor of transgenderism uh, from someone you used to go to church with. And you explain from scripture that from the beginning, God made the male and female and gender fluid isn't actually real. What are you almost sure that someone will say to you? You are being pharisaical. You'll be told that Jesus showed grace and hung out with sinners and you should pack up your judgmental words in the same box where you keep those flannel graphs from Sunday school and don't take them out of the closet again. But graciously, hear me now, graciously, and clearly, calling sin, sin, is not what it means to be a Pharisee. It seems these days that the people most interested in throwing around the label Pharisee are the people least likely to open up their Bible and see who they actually were. And though it is very fashionable in contemporary evangelicalism to use the term Pharisee, perhaps it's worth another look. And especially so because, as I would propose to you, and we're going to see from our text today that understanding who the Pharisees actually were helps us understand by contrast what true Christianity actually is. And so I think it's worth a look. We find ourselves again in the Sermon on the Mount, of course. And so I'd ask you to open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read from verses 17 to 20, but today we're just going to be looking at verse 20. But this is all one unit. It's actually the crux, the centerpiece of the Sermon on the Mount, and everything before is leading up to it, and everything after it flows out of it. So here we are. Do not, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So today we're looking at the last of these four verses that are at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Each time I've had opportunity to preach since toward the end of 2018, I've been preaching from the Sermon on the Mount. And what we've seen, we spent significant time in the Beatitudes. And we saw here that Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount the way he does because he wants to get ahead of any misunderstandings about the sermon, misunderstandings that have proliferated over the past 150 years, especially as social justice gospels have taken root. 
because people have erroneously believed that if you apply the Sermon on the Mount and just try to do it as a, either as a society or as an individual person in that society, then you will live a righteous life and God will have favor on you and the world will be a better place. And no doubt, surely if people did the Sermon on the Mount, the world would be in a better place. But here's the thing, Jesus says that without him, we can't do it, which is why he begins the way he does. The Beatitudes plainly show us that the people Jesus intends to hear and apply the Sermon on the Mount are the people who are poor in spirit. They recognize that they don't have any righteousness of their own. They can only come to God for the righteousness that he supplies in Christ. These are the people who have entered the kingdom of heaven, which is to say the kingdom where Jesus reigns as king of kings. It's the place of salvation. You enter that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, when you come to Christ by faith alone and you're in the kingdom forever. These are the people who live in the world as salt. The society all around us is decaying from sin because sin has the most corrosive effect on everything good, true, and beautiful. But God's people, the citizens of his kingdom, preserve the goodness that is there. And these people shine as lights in the world. They share the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the light of life, And now when we come to verse 17, we enter the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus began the sermon by preaching about his people who are poor in spirit, who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And this was really, when you think about Judaism in the first century and all the misunderstandings and false ideas that had kind of seeped into the details of how the Old Testament was taught and applied, this would have sounded pretty radical to Jesus' disciples. Some of them maybe even thought that Jesus was telling them that the old way was done away with, and he was preaching a whole new thing. But he says, no, that's not it. He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill it. And what he's going to do in the Sermon on the Mount from here on out is he's going to show what the true intention really was. He wasn't preaching a new religion, but rather the heart of what God had always been calling his people to in the scriptures. And in verse 17, Jesus says he is the fulfillment of everything that God had been calling his people to in the scriptures. In fact, as we saw in verses 18 and 19, Jesus plainly tells us that the entire Bible is the enduring and perfect word of God. None of it can be done away with. Yes, under the new covenant now, which was inaugurated at the death of Christ, our relationship to the law of Moses has changed, but that doesn't mean it's not God's perfect word. We now apply it as new covenant believers appropriately interpreted, but all of scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And that brings us to verse 20, where Jesus is going to explain what kind of righteousness he means for his people to have as citizens of his kingdom. And when Jesus says righteousness, he means a life that conforms to the will of God as it's expressed in Scripture. That's what he means by righteousness. And we'll look closely here at what Jesus is saying about righteousness by first looking at the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Then we're going to look at the true righteousness of Jesus, the kind of righteousness that is worked out in his redeemed people from the inside out. And then finally, I'd ask you to consider which of these two competing visions of righteousness you pursue. And so let's look first at what righteousness is not. See, if you were actually present when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount that day, you might have heard him talk about doing and teaching God's law and immediately thought about two types of people, scribes and Pharisees. 
there's a well-known saying that if two people and only two were going to get into heaven, one of them would be a scribe and one of them would be a Pharisee. Well, we've heard a lot about these guys, perhaps for our entire lives if we were born into the church, but it's easy for bad ideas to slip in alongside true ideas. So the first thing I'd like us to do this morning is to meet the scribes and the Pharisees once again, because that's what's going to help us understand what Jesus is saying when he says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So let's start by meeting the scribes. See, the scribes were the recognized experts of the law. They were the scholars of God's word. They were the keepers and teachers of Torah, the word of God. And they go back a long way by the time Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. They go back at least to the sixth century during the time when Judah was taken into exile to Babylon. Perhaps the most famous of the scribes that you would know is Ezra, whom it says in the seventh chapter of his book, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And over the centuries, as the scriptures continued to be copied by the scribes, continued to be kept by the scribes, continued to be interpreted and taught by the scribes, they were quickly by the second century esteemed as the legal experts because they'd had so much interaction with it. And we think it's a huge deal. It takes a ton of work to graduate college by age 22 or 23, earlier if you do running start. And surely it is a lot of work. But hear this, if you were a scribe, you would have started your education early and you would have graduated at the age of 40 when you were ordained. Wow. No wonder the scribes were revered by the people of Israel as the most accurate and precise Bible scholars. These guys knew the book. And throughout the New Testament, we see the scribes associated with different groups in Judaism. Sometimes they're associated with Sadducees. Uh, there were the Essenes, who were kind of off separate. There was a form of anti-Romanism that would eventually become known as Black Lives, I mean the Zealots. Um, but by far, I'm sorry, uh, by far most of the scribes at the time of Christ were associated with the Pharisees, far and away. They were sympathetic toward the Pharisees. They had much in common doctrinally with the Pharisees. Being a scribe was a profession. Being a Pharisee was a voluntary association, one with such commitment. It was made up of devout landowners, businessmen, community leaders, even some scribes. Not all scribes were Pharisees, some were, and most Pharisees were not scribes. But there was much overlap, which is why throughout the Gospels they keep coming up together in the same phrases so much. There were about 6,000 of them at the time of Christ, and they were beloved by the Israelites. So if the scribes were the Bible experts, the Pharisees were esteemed as the most devout adherents of the scribal teachings. These guys knew how to apply the book, or so it was thought. They also got their start sometime between the two Testaments. You may recall that in between the exile to Babylon and the coming of Christ, there were a number of world empires that were having dominion over the Jews. First, of course, the Babylonians, because they did take them into exile. But then in the book of Daniel, we see that the Persians came on the scene and they took over. Then Alexander the Great, he brought in the reign of Greece and the spreading of Greek culture throughout the known world, which was called Hellenization. And during the time of the Greek rule, there was one particularly nasty guy named Antiochus IV. They called him Epiphanes. 
He sounds like a bad dude, and he was. You can read about him in the Maccabees, which is not a book we consider to be part of Scripture, but you do get some details about how gruesome he was toward the Jews. That led to a revolt led by a priestly family. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. Perhaps you've heard of it. And it was on the heels of this revolt that the Jews enjoyed a time of independence, though the dominant world culture at the time was still very Greek. And so now, as a Jew, during that time, you basically have two positions that you can take toward the Greek culture that was spreading. You could either embrace it and become kind of what they called a Hellenized Jew, one who was sympathetic to incorporating as much Greek culture as possible, or you could oppose it. The people who opposed it were called the Hasidim. They were literally called the pious. That's what Hasidim means, the pious. They sought to maintain their distinctively Jewish way of life, especially in relation to God's law. And it was from the Hasidim that rose the Pharisees, which most scholars believe the word Pharisee means separated one, because they separated themselves from all secular influence and maintained a rigid devotion to the application of the law of God, to the detail. And as for a start, it's actually pretty good. They, the, what, what happened throughout that time was the rabbis would apply the scriptures to this entirely different context with the Greeks ra- ruling over everything. And, and it was into those minute details of life that these traditions rose up. How do we honor God here? What do we do there? And here in Matthew 5.20, Jesus talks about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he doesn't use the phrase, though, at this point in a positive way. He says to his people, your righteousness needs to go far beyond that, which to their ears would have been unthinkable. Because remember, these guys didn't have a bad start. But by the time that Jesus came, that faithful study and application of God's word in all of life had led to spiritual corruption, even though not all of the Pharisees were spiritual villains. You think of a Nicodemus who truly sought Christ. Perhaps Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his tomb to Jesus. Perhaps he was a Pharisee. He was on the Sanhedrin. There are others who warned Jesus that Herod was out to seek him. I mean, for the most part, the Pharisees had good theology. It's noteworthy that Jesus will go to theological debate with the Sadducees, but he doesn't do that with the Pharisees. They had a high view of Scripture. They embraced the reality of the resurrection. They They taught total depravity of human nature. They embrace the sovereignty of God in every detail of life. But their righteousness was false. At this point, they had a very deficient application of Scripture to their lives that Jesus makes plain his people are to have no part of. And it's this false righteousness that Jesus contrasts with the righteousness that his people are to have. And so what kind of righteousness was characteristic of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, first, as Jesus points out in Matthew 23, their righteousness was only skin deep. They were preoccupied with the external forms of righteousness. Yes, in the details of their lives, they conformed on the outside to the law of God, but they were basically unconcerned with a heart that loved Yahweh. We instinctively know how gross that is, right? And how dangerous. I mean, think of your kids. If you tell both your kids to clean their room, both of them do it. You know the difference, though, between the room that has been cleaned because that child wants to love you and honor you and please you versus the child that also cleans their room simply because they want to avoid the unpleasantness of the spanking that comes when they don't. 
It's my heart. It's the heart that matters as much as the outside. The outside conformity, yeah, it matters. Obedience actually means obedience. (laughs) But from the heart is what Jesus is contrasting here. God is after not only the outward obedience, but the heart-level love that gives rise to joyful obedience, the way that Josh talked about when he was leading us in confession earlier. And it was this skin-deep righteousness that Jesus was confronting in Matthew 23 when he declared, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First, clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Did you hear that? He called these people who were esteemed as the most righteous of all the Jews, he called them lawless because obedience to the law of God doesn't just go skin deep. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was no righteousness at all. But not only was it skin deep, but it was also selective and traditional. That is, they claimed to love and obey all of God's word, but in practice, they were actually selective in what they chose to obey or not. Jesus calls this out, too, in the passage from Matthew 23 that was read earlier. You know how that goes, right? It's easy for us to know what God commands, but then to justify a kind of modified obedience, one that might salve our consciences for a time, but we know inherently is falling short of the full extent to which God desires to have claim over our lives. They became masters at this, the Pharisees and the scribes did, through clever interpretational games. Everybody will interpret scripture. The question is, do we interpret it properly? And when we interpret it properly, it goes deeper than the skin. They did this, their, their interpretational games came down essentially to tradition, okay? And yes, you can think Fiddler on the Roof here. Over the centuries, the scribes and the rabbis tried to contextualize the law of God for their new situation. Again, a worthy goal. We need to constantly be applying the word of God where we are at our time. But what they did was that became tradition that said how much you could do on certain days, when you had to eat this, how you couldn't do that, where you could go, where you couldn't, how many steps you could take on the Sabbath. It just became so burdensome. And this tradition for the Pharisees was elevated to the level of scripture so that functionally what they were doing was they were going with tradition while ignoring the law of God that they were meant to apply. It made no theological sense. And yet the human heart is expert at it. So listen to what Jesus says about the Pharisees in Mark 7. He's going to quote Isaiah. He says, The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So the Pharisees and scribes elevated tradition to the level of Scripture and then violated Scripture in the process. Scripture will have no competition. 
The false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was also a self-dependent righteousness. It was a self-dependent righteousness. That is, the scribes and the Pharisees led the people in the pursuit of a righteousness that depended on their own efforts at conforming to God's law. It was a works righteousness, entirely gauged on how pious you were on the outside, and it missed the kingdom of heaven entirely. So Jesus told them, you go and you make proselytes, and then you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. This is the effect of a false righteousness worked out. It has nothing to do with the heart of God. It has nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. And here's how Paul, who himself was a Pharisee of Pharisees, describes this kind of false righteousness in Romans 10. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. False righteousness does not depend on God. It depends on itself. And it falls short of God every single time. And Jesus would have the citizens of his kingdom stay as far away from a self-dependent righteousness as possible because it damns to hell. Open, if you would, with me to Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at a parable that Jesus tells about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And this is going to help us see another aspect of the kind of false righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees excelled at. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, friends, Pharisaic righteousness is a condescending righteousness. I mean, look at the disdain with which this Pharisee looks down on the tax collector. And to be sure, tax collectors were a very hated group within all of Judaism, not just to the Pharisees, because the tax collectors sold out their own people to the Romans. They extorted money from them and gave it to the overlords that the Jews wanted to be free from politically. So it was a really bad thing to be a tax collector. But Jesus says, the false righteousness of this Pharisee he, would, he did not go home justified. His condescending self-righteousness is no righteousness at all. This tax collector despised for being the scum of society, the worst possible kind of Jew, he trusted himself to the mercy of God with humility, and he went home justified. 
See, false righteousness often takes pride in its own obedience and its accomplishments, its, its own supposed holiness, and it looks on others who don't quite measure up to its own standards, which are always self-imposed, and it says, those sinners, mm-mm, they're no good. So it's condescending righteousness. And the other thing that we see in this parable of the Pharisee and tax collector is that the, the Pharisees were quite self-exalting, which is kind of the, the, the flip side of the coin of being condescending. You've got to be up here. They've got to be down there. And that's exactly what scribal and Pharisaic self-righteousness did. They sought their own glory, which Solomon says in Proverbs 25, seeking your own glory, it is not glorious. Jesus said in Matthew 23 in verses 5 and 6, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. The scribes and Pharisees were a big deal among God's people. They knew it, and they wouldn't let you forget it. False righteousness always tells you how much it seeks after God and how pleased God must be to have them on his side. And if we're not careful, that's exactly the kind of attitude that a commitment to holiness, starting off well, can become if we lose sight of Jesus. And this was the picture of counterfeit righteousness that Jesus has in mind when he tells his disciples that their righteousness must far outstrip that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's what the word exceeds means. It's an emphatic word. If you think that these guys have righteousness, you got to far exceed them. Their righteousness is skin deep, selective, traditional, self-dependent, condescending, and self-exalting. Jesus, on the other hand, requires a righteousness that is so different from that, it's incomparably beyond it, which poses a problem. Because remember, remember how radical this was to the people who heard this the first time. Jesus was telling those people, his disciples, who thought that the Pharisees were the creme de la creme of holiness, you got to go above it. How does that happen? How do you even get close? To put it in modern terms, how does the common churchgoer ever try to exceed, how can they ever expect to exceed a veteran missionary, seminary professor, or a local church elder at being holy? I mean, that's, that's the contrast. Well, meet Jesus, the king of the kingdom, who's preaching this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom manifesto, as it were. And he lays out exactly what it takes to enter the kingdom and what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom. And where does kingdom life begin? Whose kingdom is it? How does the whole sermon begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Friends, the righteousness of Jesus' people is not a righteousness of their own. It's a righteousness of his own. It's a righteousness of his own. And that's the whole logic of the Sermon on the Mount, that only those who recognize their utter inability to please God and who come to Christ alone for salvation will be saved. The Pharisees looked to themselves for righteousness and missed it and excelled at wickedness. And then the wicked who recognize their own condition and come to Christ for his righteousness, they 
have exceeding righteousness beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because Jesus died on the cross and took their place, he took his, he took his people's sins and they take his righteousness. Consider the words that we just sang. Now see the king who wears a crown, one made of shame and splinters, the sacrifice for ruined men, the substitute for sinners. As earth is stained with royal blood and quakes with love and fury, he breathes his last and bows his head. The king in all his beauty, our beautiful king, clothing his vile people in his righteous robes. That is what Good Friday and Easter are all about. That is what Jesus points us to when he says, this is the righteousness of the kingdom. So if you would meet Jesus, trusting in his finished work for you, you will have righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. So we've looked at what their righteousness is, which is to say we've looked at what righteousness is not. But let's turn the corner and for the next few moments consider what Jesus would have us understand true righteousness to be. If the Pharisees' righteousness was skin deep, Christian righteousness is heart deep. Okay, because when Jesus meets a sinner in need of saving, he doesn't save him part way. <laughs> Jesus didn't come to earth part way. He didn't take on human nature part way. No, Jesus comes in whole and saves his people wholly. He saves them from the top down, inside out and every bit, old heart gone, new heart in. He cleanses them. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. What the teacher of Israel, the Pharisee of Pharisees in that day, could not understand at that point, that Jesus speaks of a new covenant, a new covenant with a new heart, a new heart given by a Holy Spirit that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31 when it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will, not, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Pharisees had the law on their sleeves. God's people have the law in their hearts. And so when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night when he was betrayed, he declared the new covenant in his blood. And when he died, that new covenant began. And every Christian is part of that new covenant. In fact, the, the Sermon on the Mount is a new covenant sermon. It's not just a recapitulation of the law of Moses. No, it's an application of the law of Moses to the Christian through the Holy Spirit, living under the lordship of Jesus, who is king of that kingdom. And in that kingdom... The righteousness of Christ in his people is worked out from the heart. And in contrast to the cherry-picking righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that elevated tradition to a place of preeminence, Jesus' people live out a righteousness that is total and is biblical. That is to say, God's redeemed people are concerned with all of God's commands, and they recognize that all that God requires is found in the pages of Scripture. Sola Scriptura, not tradition. You don't need to get it from your denomination's headquarters. You don't need to get it from your Bible college handbook. You get it from the pages of Scripture. Everything else is gravy. 
Look back at Matthew 5:19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So far from relaxing the standards of God's word, Jesus demands full conformity to his law, full obedience to scripture, the scriptures which are the exclusive repository of what true Christianity looks like. And so if you're saved by grace, your business simply boils down to this, the whole Bible, <laughs> which is a lot, I get that, which brilliant. Jesus breaks it down, he says, love God and your neighbor. That's the whole thing summed up. But even that, we recognize we're totally incapable of on our own. We couldn't, even, even, even as believers, we can't pull that off on our own, which is why true righteousness is spirit-dependent righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees were self-dependent in their righteousness, but those who are poor in spirit and who hunger and thirst for righteousness are gonna be dependent on the Holy Spirit. God in them, which is exactly what the prophet Ezekiel says about the new covenant. Where does the kind of righteousness that God's word require, requires come from? Listen to the prophet. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Look at that, I will, I will cause you. Who, who is I? It's God. God will cause you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. So false righteousness always looks to its own resources and comes up empty. And that's why one of the most damning things that has graced the church in America in the last 50 years or so is this idea of some kind of self-help Christianity peddled by the likes of Rachel Hollis or Joel Osteen or Stephen Furtick or Glennon Doyle. Friends, if you open a book and it says, look within, shut the book, throw it away and look up. There's no such thing as a righteousness that we find within ourselves. The true righteousness, the only true righteousness, comes through Christ and looking to him, his finished work on the cross, and it depends on his Holy Spirit. Make no mistake, though, we are called to strive, but it's not a striving from within. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. The order makes all the difference between the gospel and heresy. We don't strive for righteousness to attain salvation. We strive for righteousness because of salvation. To strive for salvation is to strive in your flesh. To strive because of salvation is dependence on the spirit. That's the gospel order. It's at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And so, I told you, we're turning a corner from here. And this summer, I'm so excited to be getting into all the details of what this kind of righteousness looks like as Jesus goes through the Sermon on the Mount. But we need to remember, the reason that we're pursuing that is because of what Jesus did. It's a posture of love. And it's in stark contrast to the self-dependent righteousness that looks down on others who don't conform. The righteousness of Christ, on the other hand, is worked out in his people as a gracious righteousness. It's a gracious righteousness. So the scribes and Pharisees were experts at condescension. They kind of made an art out of it. 
like we saw. Anybody they deemed unworthy, such as tax collectors and prostitutes, they turned their nose up at. Anybody who didn't fit their mold, but true righteousness in the life of a person who trusts Christ recognizes that there is no room for condescension because we're all sinners in need of a savior. On the back of our bulletin for the past several weeks, we've had Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Consider others better, more significant than yourselves. That's the heart of the gospel worked out in somebody, in their relationship to others. How could there be room for pride except in our flesh? Because when Christ comes in, we recognize that we're all of us level at the foot of the cross. So true righteousness gets summed up in love to God and love to neighbor. And that means considering others is more significant. And it also means lovingly confronting sin. See, these, two, these, are, these things are held in a balance, and, and if there's anything that humans are good at, it's keeping things out of balance when it comes to the Bible. We see the same Jesus who condemns self-righteous condescension also calling his people to gently confront one another's unrepentant sin so that together we may continue to strive after Christ. The difference, though, between false righteousness and true righteousness is that true righteousness graciously and humbly addresses a brother or sister in Christ. False righteousness is harsh, judgmental, self-exalting, and relationship-burning. We're called to build one another up in love and good works. And finally, the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees is not focused on itself. Rather, it's focused on Christ. It's, it's a Christ-exalting righteousness. How could it not be? Because he's the wellspring of it. He's the sum of it. He's the perfect picture of it. And so he begins this whole section in verse 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They are fulfilled in Jesus. They're about Jesus. They foretell Jesus. They paint picture after picture of Jesus. They lead us to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect picture of obedience and conformity to the law of God. He is the perfect picture of righteousness, and that's why he's our sinless substitute. So true righteousness, if you want to boil the whole thing down, simply looks like this, becoming more like Jesus, which other people would call the normal Christian life, fleshed out in detail all through Scripture. And that's the bottom line of Matthew 5.20. Here it is. False righteousness trusts in itself, and it only goes skin deep. True righteousness trusts in Christ, and it goes heart deep. False righteousness trusts in self and is skin deep. True righteousness trusts in Christ and is heart deep. Which leaves you and I asking, what kind of righteousness am I pursuing? Make no mistake, every person, unless they're just a total bum, is pursuing some kind of righteousness, okay? The question is which kind? Same way that everybody is a theologian. The question is how intentional and how good of one. <laughs> what kind of righteousness are you pursuing? And friend, if you're here or watching online and you've never trusted Christ alone for your salvation, if you have not come into a new relationship of hostility toward the sin that you once loved, then you are still in your sins and condemned and pursuing a false righteousness. But it doesn't have to be that way. Today, you can come to the Jesus who has been held out for you in Scripture. You can cling to him by faith alone, and you can be clothed in the righteousness that you could never attain, and only he supplies.
And brother or sister in Christ, if you have come to Christ and are continually coming to Christ by faith and repentance, resting in dependence on the Holy Spirit, then you have the true righteousness of Christ and you are growing in practical righteousness as you walk with him. Your righteousness does exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's the practical righteousness that the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be fleshing out one bit at a time. But here's the thing, though. I don't know if you've noticed in your, <laughs> in your Christian life that usually things aren't as um, clear-cut as we'd like them to be. It's not as much that we're always only pursuing true righteousness or pursuing false righteousness. I mean, how often do we find that our motives are mixed, that our desires are at war within us, that our flesh is strong and our spirits are weak, that we're harsh when we should be gracious, shallow when we should be deep and dependent on ourselves when we should prayerfully depend on the spirit and the word. What are we to do? Well, the prophet Hosea tells us what to do. He says, let us press on to know the Lord. Let's keep coming. Let's keep pressing deeper. Let's go further up and further in. And what a great opportunity we have here this morning. As we come to the Lord's table, friends, this is what it's about. We are declaring our helplessness and Christ's sufficiency. We're looking back to his finished work and forward to his coming. We're trusting him that here in the supper, he will nourish us to the righteousness that only he can give. And if you belong to Christ, this table is meant for you. And with a word of caution. The Apostle Paul tells us that anyone who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we come with circumspect hearts. We come examining, is there any, any unrepentant sin that we're cherishing? Because now's the time to forsake it. Are there any divisions in the church that we have participated in and made deeper? Now's the time to repair those. We come to the table as one body of Christ. If you're weak in your faith and wonder if you should come, Jesus says that's exactly why you should come, because we need the nourishment he supplies. If you're weak because you haven't eaten for three days, the answer is to not, not, eat, you know, is to not eat for four? No, <laughs> eat now. Eat by faith. And if you're not a Christian, if you're unsure whether you belong to Christ, we would ask you graciously to just stay seated and refrain from coming forward. That's exactly as God intends. But if you're desiring to follow Christ, please come after the supper, come after the service and talk to one of the elders who will serve you the supper about what it means to follow Jesus. And then we would lead you to follow him in baptism and then come to the table. But friends, if you would please stand with me and either in your bulletin or on the overhead, we're going to confess our common faith together in the Apostles' Creed. We are, after all, one body in one Lord, confessing one faith with one God and Father of all. And so let's declare what it is that we believe and the basis on which we come to the Lord's Supper. Please confess this with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, I'm going to read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11, and as I do, elders who are serving, if you would please come forward and prepare to serve the people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please pray with me over the supper. Lord Jesus, you gave us and continue to give us this gift of the supper to nourish us. In our, in our communion with you, because we have an unshakable union with you, because of your finished work and your resurrection. We thank you, Jesus, for the infinite love that you poured out for our salvation, the love of the Father who ordained and decreed and purposed our salvation from before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. We ask that by the Holy Spirit, in this supper, you would nourish us in our faith. Strengthen us where we are weak. Help us to repent where we struggle to repent. Grant us true, holy desires and affections for you, that we would seek communion with you all the more, pressing on to know you, who are our only hope. We praise you for the rich picture of your body and blood, broken and poured out for us, that this supper is and we commit it to you with thanksgiving, praying these things in your name. Amen.